Interface is a leading provider and local manufacturer of flooring solutions and global leader in, in sustainability. They've recently achieved a carbon negative milestone, launching the world's first carbon negative carpet tile. Interface has been leading the way by reducing the carbon footprint of their products and manufacturing processes for more than two decades because only by working together with designers, engineers and scientists can we make the changes required to reverse global warming. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Maletic and today we'll be talking about biophilic design in the built environment. The term biophilia was first coined by social psychologist Eric Fromm in 1964 and later popularized by biologist Edward Wilson in the 1980s. The actual word biophilia means the urge for humans to affiliate with other life. Hmm. Biophilia hypotheses um, have now been directly incorporated into architecture and interior design with a view to improving productivity and the well-being of people in the indoor space. And to talk about biophilic design, today we have with us Stephen Choi from Fraser's Property. Stephen Choi is a UK qualified architect and, Austra and also Australian qualified project manager. He co-founded not-for-profit environmental building consultancy architecture for change and is living and and is living building challenge manager for Fraser's Property Australia. Choi's work has included the development of global environmental assessment methods, designing and managing building projects, embedding sustainable development into educational curriculum or curriculum, and um, being Australia's leading living building challenge experts expert rather. Several of his projects in, in both the private and public sectors have been recognised in the industry for progressing green building. Stephen Choi is also the winner of the Australian Institute of Architects 2020 Leadership in Sustainability Prize. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Stephen Choi. Well, thank you so much. It's quite an introduction and really um, appreciate being here. That's quite okay. That's a, that's actually the short version. I, 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 if I had a lot more time, we could have got in, in, into all, 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 all the things that you've achieved, but we, we won't right now. Okay, so biophilia, bringing nature into the living working space. Does that mean carefully locating potted plants around the workplace? I mean, without being too facetious, is biophilia just about plants? I mean, it, it's, it's much more than that, isn't it? Yeah, certainly much more. It's kind of like... Think of it like public transport. If, is public transport only about buses? <laughs> Not really. Um, I mean, buses are a form of public transport, but um, you know they're only part of a bigger system that we can use. You know, to, to whatever effects we like. And so, plant, plants are a key part of biophilic design in many ways, but certainly not the only part. In in terms that you use the word design, um, and we obviously will be will be using the word design here quite a lot, but. When you're talking about biophilia, there is there is a holistic design approach here, isn't it? It is design, isn't it? It's not just it's not just the, the you know um, the issue of nature or whatnot. It is it is design, isn't it? So biophilia on its own, yes, is uh, I, I guess connected intrinsically to science. Biophilic design is the application of those kind of principles into our um, designed environment. In the way that we're talking about it so like any kind of design practice um, and this is quite contentious some people will like put a capital B and a capital D on the words biophilic design but you could see it as lowercase and that I think that might help frame 
when you think about it, it's part of designing and obviously very key for the built environment. And it's um, the clues in the title, you know, bio, as in um, biological, biology, biomimicry, biodiversity, and, yep. and so on. Yep. It's interesting you say lower case. It's a bit like climate change. In, in my mind, it's like, um, you know, once it becomes widely acceptable, then no need for caps anymore. So climate change to be climate change and now it is climate change or however you want to call it, yeah. That's a really excellent example you bring up there because if we capitalise, what we do is sort of demean it in a way, um, put it in a kind of bucket as though it's something separate that you should be doing. It's like health and safety. You know, we use that term so freely, but if we thought about the words carefully, they have real power, but they roll off the tongue to the point that all of our connotations about it are nothing to do with health or safety. In the same way, biophilic design, if we let it roll off the tongue too easily, we think only about plants um, and not recognise just how complex and um, wonderful it can be. You know? So speaking of complexity, most complex systems have a rhythm of some sort. Um, you know, whether we talk about the universe or whether we talk about you know, your iPhone. There, there is a rhythm there. Um, and we often talk about light as being part of our rhythm, our human rhythm, yeah? So how does, for example, biophilic design approach this element? How do we, how do, we do this artificially by, by, chain, by artificially changing lighting, rather? Um, is it, can we do it naturally or do we have to do it artificially in order to mimic our uh, circadian rhythms? So... In anything to do with biophilic design, I tend to always look back through um, evolutionary history where a lot of these, you know, intrinsic feelings, emotions, physiological responses, etc., we have just by being alive, um, the bio in being alive. And if you think about light, for the vast majority of human history, what have we had? The sun and fire. Mm. Yeah. And fire obviously has its limits too because um, it's very hard to keep a fire going all the time. So, um, And it has a particular colour and a particular temperature and a particular spectrum. So when we're talking about circadian rhythm, yeah, we are really talking um, about our connection essentially to the sun, which obviously is impacted by where you live in the world, what season it is and so on. We obviously live, most of us, in places where the majority of light that we might receive is completely artificial, like you say. And so if you're in that environment uh, where a lot of the light that you receive is artificial, then we should be respecting that and being very focused on um, working out how to mimic and enhance um, those environments to bring us back to the, the, the heart of um, good lighting is really, again, about health. And um, I think it's, it's very interesting when you look at light or sound or anything that you mentioned that has a rhythm. Um, we have to think about it in terms of um, health, yes. We should think about it in terms of what does it mean to ignore it? A lot of the time we think about the lack of good lighting or you know, the lack of plants or whatever it might be. That's really always connected to our urban environment, which is pretty scary, really. You... Um, go to bed, you've probably got your phone on. There's probably a blue light on that phone. Um, 
you're essentially telling those parts of your brain that um, it's still daytime. And then you wonder why you don't sleep so well, that you're anxious about the meeting or the podcast you're supposed to be recording the following day and so on. Um, so sometimes it's built environment design related, but some, a, lot, a lot of the time with light, it's about us and our own personal habits. And that's why I think biophilic design is interesting. It's a kind of enabler in the built environment, but no one's going to stop you from having your phone and blue light on till late at night versus putting it away. That is very, very true. Um, you know, I, I find it I find it weird that people who um, first thing they do, um, they wake up and they look at their phone. Um, I, I just find that I, I mean, there's nothing. I'm, I'm not anti technology hardly, but you know, there are there are other things you can look at before before your iPhone. And on that point, actually, um, it's but it's not just light, is it? In, in terms of things that contribute to, to good biophilic design, it's not. It's it's all. I mean, light's obviously very important, but there's sounds, there's air, and of course, there's you know the thing that we look for on other planets: the presence of water. <laughs> uh, there's a whole series of things that, that are important. Um, obviously, without needing to go into you know a Dave and Attenborough um, <laughs> level of complexity, um, uh, what is um, what is the interplay between those in terms of biophilic design? Generally, there's the, we are part of the natural world, right? So in the built environment, which I think is where we really should be as a starting point to talk about this, um, it's a matter of allowing ourselves to really be part of that natural environment. And the clues are all there. Um, the sound of the rain, that you might be able to hear while I'm speaking now. The feeling and texture of that rain, that presence of water and the way you watch it move. Um, the color of the sky when it rains. Um, these things are all always gonna happen. They're always there. They're part of the natural world of which we're part. Biophilic design in that context is about allowing that and encouraging the connection to that. There are other aspects of biophilic design which are about trying to mimic those um, natural patterns and processes, um, as an example. And those parts of biophilic design really relate to um, accepting sometimes that we might be in extremely urbanized environments where our connection to wild places is, for some people, they'll never see one in their entire lifetime. So anything you can think of that's in a wild place, an animal, a place of shelter, fire, water, um, you mentioned light, you mentioned sound, um, textures, the feeling of um, air moving. The You look at, um, take a plant as an example. What's special, why would you go for a, a live plant against a plastic one? It's not just the way it looks, right? There's so many other aspects to that thing. And really what's so fascinating for me is that you can, Take a walk outside um, and you'll see what the things are that exist in biophilic, you know, what our biophilic urges are. When you see a dog, how happy that makes you feel. Why is that? You know, um, there's something deeply ingrained in us about those things. When you see a snake, why don't you feel happy? You know, there's something deeply ingrained in that. Yeah, there's a sense of um, fear. And all of these things uh, are 
intrinsic to many of us and there's an overlay of culture too, but um, biophilic design is actually about consciously, intentionally taking those things in our natural world and determining to what extent we want to engage with them. This is fast turning into a lesson in evolutionary biology, isn't it? So all those things that you mentioned, but they actually stem from, you know, thousands, if not perhaps hundreds of thousands of years of, of, of development. Um, and on that point, can we fake that? I mean, can we fake uh, natural responses? I mean, can we replicate is what I'm trying to say in, in, a, in a sort of a, in an unnatural world to try and, you know, invent a natural world? Is that, is that at all possible? To an extent. Um, and we're doing it all the time unconsciously. So one of the, one of the really wonderful um, examples of a pattern of biophilic design is the sense of wanting to have the ability to see very far away and the ability to feel safe at the same time. So this goes back to, you know, um, you're out in the prairie or on the plains, there's a cave behind you where you have your shelter and it's up on a plinth, so you can sort of see in the distance, you can see the risks of um, some, someone or something coming. You can also see the potential for food. Um, and yet you have the cave behind you. Where you are right now, where you've decided to put your computer to have this discussion, the way your desk is facing, when you made those decisions, that was biophilic design-led, unconsciously. You probably, I'm guessing, you're probably not in the very middle of a living room with your screen facing the outside world so everyone can see it, right? Mm -hmm. I would guess that one of either you and or the desk itself might be up against or near a surface that has this sense of um, refuge, let's say. So that, that for me is um, we're kind of trying to replicate or subconsciously replicating that evolutionary history there of this, the safety of the cave, of the ability to see and survey uh, the savannah in this case. Um, then there are some like horrible and contentious and also fascinating examples. Um, I was in the US a few years ago and I went into an office building. I think I was on the third floor and the building was 18 stories from memory. And on the ceiling um, there were screens of and on the screens you could see the sky and you could see palm trees hanging over um, <laughs> and for me i found it very difficult because i knew i was on the third floor of an 18-story building right i knew it was raining outside but i'm looking at a sunny sky with palm trees humans are actually quite good at detecting the slightest things you, you probably can drive past a pub and know if they've got plastic plants or real ones because humans are actually pretty good at that even from yeah. a distance there's something about that isn't there so we're quite good at detect detecting those um attempts at mimicry so we have to be pretty careful about um going down those lines i think do you think that now we've been what 20 ish months in in the pandemic do you think that this has influenced 
the rate of biophilic design or the uptake of biophilic design? Uh, and if so, in what way? I've found lots of projects that have really benefited from thinking about biophilic design and having incorporated it. So spaces that are inside that actually have a feeling like you're outside. And we have this desire, especially during these last 20 months, to, um, to be outdoors a lot. We have this desire to um, feel something, even if it is the rain that we may never have wanted to walk out in, even if it is to see other people um, walking their pets, even if it's um, one of those days where under other circumstances you might not have gone outside. And so those projects that have really thought about bringing the outside in through all these different methods, I think have really done very well. And um, the sort of restrictions on, on movement and going outside, I think has really accelerated this, um, un this awareness that we are really far away from where we need to be. Being locked into a home um, has made us really, really far more attuned to the environments that we've set up. Mm -hmm. Reminds me, recently I watched, um, for the umpteenth time, Blade Runner. Um, and it, both actually, uh, the, the sequel, which is not as good as obviously the original, but they both have this indoors environment that is totally controlled. I mean, it's a sci-fi movie, but it's totally controlled. At the outside, it's horrible. Yet, yet the inside isn't really that much better, is it? But is, is, is there a danger? I mean, obviously, this kind of question is, you know, is a bit like, you know, when will, heck, when will we get flying cars? But is there a danger that, you know, society gone wrong, biophilic design gone wrong, you know, climate gone wrong, that we end up in a, in a war like that sometime, you know, in the next century or two? Oh, it's a very high danger. We're in, we're in danger of only the most affluent people having external wild experiences again, you know. Um, and we all know we don't want that. I think that's the other thing that's... Um, especially if you were born before the internet, I think you have an even stronger penchant for knowing that danger and um, you can only know though what you are um, familiar with so in a few generations time like you mentioned there will be people who are born into an AI, AI artificial intelligence influence world beyond our imagination and um, that Blade Runner example <laughs> that you perfectly give is is that sense of what would be actually better being inside this bubble or outside of it um, and there's a high risk that, you know, with uh, disruptions to the climate, uh, refugees as a result, smaller or fewer places that we're able to live, um, higher densities and so on. Those things all point to the potential that we are going to have less wild spaces that we can share. Interface is a leading provider and local manufacturer of flooring solutions and global leader in, in sustainability. They've recently achieved a carbon negative milestone, launching the world's first carbon negative carpet tile. Interface has been leading the way by reducing the carbon footprint of their products and manufacturing processes for more than two decades because only by working together with designers, engineers and scientists can we make the changes required to reverse global warming. And now back to our podcast. So let's talk about sustainability. I mean, with our awards coming up soon, um, 
there was there was a quote I, I noticed that you that you that you you were, you were well you were quoted or rather I should say in 2018 and says and I'll and I'll, I'll repeat this hopefully I, I've got it right I try not to use the word sustainability or sustainable development because it's not enough it's so depressing an idea because it's the bare minimum in in light of what you just said what did did that is that what you just actually meant, or or is it, did you mean something else by by that? Those things are definitely connected. Um, when you think about the trajectory that we're on right now, um, the changing climate, air pollution, water quality problems, species are going extinct all the time. You know, biodiversity and um, ecosystems are really being degraded. I'm pretty sure that we don't really want to sustain that kind of trend. We have to be in a place where we are regenerating. We are um, able to restore, essentially, um, what we have done before. Biophilic design is a perfect kind of gateway into that because there's a lot of research that shows um, as we grow up as children, whatever we are exposed to, connected to, as adults, we tend to be more likely to care for. So if you are in an environment and you grow up um, in an external environment where you have a lot of connection to the natural wild world, you're far more likely to have a very strong environmental bias when you are uh, as an adult. And there's been many, many studies with thousands of people over many decades that demonstrate this. So biophilic design has a really key role to play because we have to, even in urban environments, get people to care about the natural world of which we're part, even though they might not be directly experiencing that wild nature on a daily, even weekly, even monthly, even annual basis. I know people that have never been somewhere wild in their whole lives. Wow. You think Australia, we're very fortunate because you're almost always near the ocean and it's pretty okay. hard. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're in um, a location that's not so close to the coast and your nearest um, sense of nature is actually a park, a manicured park is, you know, at one end of the spectrum, it's really beautiful, necessary. It's a green lung. At the other end of the spectrum, you could say it's like a prison for trees, you know. Okay. <laughs> lacks biodiversity. Everything's done in a grid. Um you know, someone's going around with a leaf blower every autumn so that those leaves can't, you know, actually provide nutrients back to the soil and so on. So um, I know people who that's their everyday lives and particularly during these restrictions, that's what most people are hanging on to right now. Mm. Uh, it, it's funny you say a, a leaf, blo leaf blower every autumn. I lived in a neighborhood where leaf blowers come out about every 18 minutes. Uh, I was going to say that. <laughs> so, um, these these so-called well, let's call them problems, but that's only because you know it's in relation to something. And in this case, it's in relation to modern society that we live in. There's a lot of uh, things that we can learn from, let's say, not so modern society, say indigenous communities, uh, with respect to you know incorporating biophilic design into our built environment. Um, again, that connection of land, water, and whatnot. Um, what are some of the ones that you've or some of the ones that you've seen um, throughout your, your career? I've never once had a meeting, discussion, conversation with um, someone who actually has that cultural heritage and history where I haven't learned something. Um, one of the big reasons is, I'm going back a step 
that park that I just described, there's this um, term that's called shifting baseline. It's mm. where we can only really understand where we are from our own context and lived experience. So the park that I said is like a prison for trees. Um, that used to be an incredibly wild place full of, you know, wild animals and um, huge amounts of biodiversity. There were no leaf blowers. And um, <laughs> now, because it's been manicured into a park, the next generation only know it as a park, um, we might be fighting over a scrap of grass in the next generation, right? For someone who uh, is uh, either First Nations or Indigenous Aboriginal, as however um, each wishes to be um, understood, their baseline is so vastly incomprehensible to someone like me who cannot even begin to understand what they've lost, right? We're talking about, I've had conversations with people who describe um, trees as family members you know i was in new zealand um look, looking at a project that was developed by a maori community called the two white people extraordinary we we're walking around the, the the building and the site and i just said you know where's where's your site boundary and they just said what i said where's your you know where's your land like where's your red line where's your land and they just said we don't we don't own the land you know, she owns us. Um, and I kind of learned something from that because we live in a, an egocentric way where we're at the top of this chain of um, stuff that happens below us. Um, humans are at the top and everything else exists to serve us. The natural world is there to be taken from for resources. It's there to entertain us. It's there to provide some kind of um, service somehow. Whereas we need to move from that kind of egocentric to like be ecologically minded or some people call it ecocentric. But that sense that we're within part of that chain and we're within part of this ecosystem. And indigenous communities are sensationally good at remembering that despite all that they've lost, despite um, so much of their history being decimated. Um, one of the projects I worked on recently that I'm proud to work on was... Um, a shopping centre in Melbourne and the, the ceiling has this um, artwork by Aboriginal Wurundjeri artist um, Mandy Nicholson. She's done this artwork and it describes um, a couple of things. One is how the uh, local river, the Yarra River, was formed and it describes the layers of country and the geology of the land that we're standing on. And it's all done in this just amazing way and it, makes you able to connect back to the country, the place you're standing on, purely through visual means. Um, I asked Mandy, the artist, you know, what does your artwork smell like? And she said, it's a very uh, particular eucalyptus tree that's burning, and it comes from the Yarra Ranges, and, um, which is just to the north, east northeast of uh, where we were. And that is a particular welcoming um, smell in her community. So we integrated that smellscape into the lobby from which you walk into the building but just before seeing your artwork. Uh, and she said, perfect, I love the idea. And so that, that was an incredible sort of thought process where we've got a ceiling and we've got a lobby. 
here's someone with you know a cultural history that goes back millennia who's come up with something so beautiful and simple and incredibly effective and all we had to do was ask that wouldn't be the uh, Burwood Brickworks, would it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I, when you when you mentioned the artwork, it reminded me because it, it won last year's um, Best of the Best Award now in our Sustainability Awards, and it is one day when they let me out of this prison, <laughs> I may actually go and <laughs> go and have a, have a look at it. But it is actually a stunning place, and and but it's not just stunning. It's it, there, there's facts and figures to back up its sustainable. Um, you know, outcomes. And on that point, it reminds me of something. I remember Michael Moore, you know, who, who I find both interesting and annoying both at the same time, saying something that recently he said that, you know, if, if we want to live sustainably or something along those lines, we should go live in a cave because modern society isn't, you know, designed for sustainability. What do you, what do you say about that? I think that's quite reductive potentially and um, I understand his sentiment but I also feel that it's not helpful and um, when I say helpful I mean we need to be pragmatic and hopeful about what we are doing and that is neither pragmatic nor helpful um, despite all his incredible work. Um, so. There are many things about our society that are systemically difficult to, to address. Um, whether it's that we live in a you know, very car-centric um, place, for example. Um, but there are so many things that are also happening that are changing that. So I remember, um, again, external example, I was in Sweden and this whole neighborhood uh, near Malmo in, in Sweden, it was a very old, mostly public social housing neighbourhood and a lot of people inside, you can imagine what it's like, it's not dissimilar to other social public housing um, districts. What they changed was, um, went to firstly a lot of electric vehicles and they set up um, a, a small electric bus system and they changed a lot of the roadways into um, natural bioswales so they're you know managing water and incre increasing landscape by cleaning the air reducing the sort of tailpipe pollution and because electric cars are so much quieter people now open their windows a lot more so they can hear the outside they um, can feel the airflow they reduce their um, air conditioning as a result and heating um, you know because you have more control of the space that you're in um, and then on and on it goes because um, less pollution, there were more insects, more insects, more birds, more birds, more birdsong, um, you know, more predators to eat those birds. And through just something quite simple, the electric car, which is a thoroughly modern in invention. So I've just thought of that off the top of my head, but there's a, there's a number of things where you can say we can either say there's no point let's just go back and live in a cave or how do we take a different path with what we've got um in in the best way possible interesting okay so given given what you just said 
Um, oh, by the way, reductive is probably the nicest thing I could say about Michael Moore. It's a very good way of describing him. But um, <laughs> given the crises um, facing the globe, and with, with what you just said, you know, there is climate and there's pandemic, and there is also an argument that this, well, I'm assuming assuming that it, that it was natural. This this pandemic. There's also a uh, an argument there of, of of our you know troubled relationship with nature. Dare I say? Um, given all 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 this, is the the, the all, all our dare I call it grand architectural gestures, the trend, the skyscrapers, the glass boxes, the and, and the brutalism, which I've got to say I wouldn't wouldn't mind seeing the back of. Um, it, is there actually a, a, um, a need for this? And, and is there a, an alternate vision, with what, again, with what, where you were going before, for the built environment? Hmm. It's very dependent on the place and um, it's very economically focused, of course. Um, buildings are not just shelter anymore, they're commodities, right? And so um, when something becomes a commodity, its drivers change radically and so when you talk about giant glass boxes, do they are they necessary? Um, you could argue that they're not. However, can we do these large buildings and still make the world a better place? I believe we can. Um, glass boxes can also have you know bird and bat boxes in them. Um, they have the ability to capture water. They have the ability to um, address and incorporate natural light. Uh, they have the ability to increase species um, in a particular area if done with some thought and um, thinking about again an indigenous learning um, I learned something about a place in Melbourne I was working where they thought of the the world the the plant world in kind of four layers like there's the canopy layer there's the sort of um, small tree the understory and, and the shrubs and you can actually replicate someone like that up a building you know um, thinking about those layers of canopy all the way through to ground cover um, and so there are inventive ways of doing it if you think about it in those ways and I think there's a mixture of private sector having to really take this on big time and public sector through planning and other mechanisms actually making it necessary it's, it, that's actually really interesting. I, I, that was the same um, a response I got from Christian Hampson from Yerubingan, who's done a lot of rooftop gardens, as you know, it's a, just a previous interview. And he basically said the exact same thing. And I, I remember I, I remember we were having this chat and I remember saying that I was I was invited to some some schmoozy journal event, which I don't no longer get invited to because of some silly pandemic. But I remember it was on top of a building, uh, was or near the top of a building in, in Sydney. And the amount of roof space that is just available, just for simple things, if we want to talk the bare minimum of biophilic design, rooftop gardens, the amount of space available is just phenomenal. Is this perhaps something that perhaps we haven't looked at enough, do you think? Absolutely right. And um, I hope Christian's well. He's a very inspiring character. Um, and what they've done there in Redfern, if you haven't been, is, um, yeah, wonderful. The... In other jurisdictions, there's a really stronger focus on ratio of green space. So, you know, there's some projects I've seen that three or four times, that 
the council required them to have three or four times more green than their own footprint. So you're building a building and it's not just the rooftop, it's the facade as well and the podium levels um, as well as the ground plane that needs to be um, restorative to the, to the natural world. Right? And yeah, if you go up high in Sydney and you look down and all you're seeing is air conditioning systems, it, it's kind yeah. of depressing, not even solar power in a lot of cases which yeah. also could be um, integrated so there's so much potential there it just takes some care and it takes some um, some shifts that will leave us that will make changes in economics in and around Melbourne there's a lot of councils that have declared a climate emergency and you see it a lot and yet they are approving buildings every day that are actually degrading the very climate the climate that they're saying is in an emergency situation. So it's very dangerous to use terms and then not follow through on them because they become weaker over time. And the word emergency is a very strong term. It's exactly as you said earlier about the, the capital letters used in certain terminology. I mean, you're, 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 for want of a better term, you're virtue signaling, yet you're using emotive terms, which in supposedly elicit or uh, require an elicitation of a, of a very, very severe response. Um, but in the end, if that severe response doesn't come through, then you're degrading your own argument, aren't you? Um, I've got to ask, is that, so is that maybe what we need, a legislative lever? For definite. That, I mean, that is an absolute requirement because we can rely on some private developers to do some innovative things um, but until we go from the bottom-up approach we're talking about such radical change needed in the shortest amount of time possible that's not all going to happen through a handful of innovative developers so do you think it's actually that ready? I mean, okay. What I'm asking is, what would what would it take for radical to become normal? In built environment planning levers, um, probably some um, financial levers that and me mechanisms for um, charging people for their pollution would be a start. Because then, at that point, when you're setting those parameters performance-based requirements of some kind, you're then letting the private sector work out how they would like to address those. You're not telling them how to do it, you're telling them what they need to do. And um, New South Wales has biodiversity offsets, for example, which are pretty substantial. That has changed uh, a lot of developments and how they go about it. We're going to see a lot of embodied carbon becoming part of um, a lot of buildings' um, design and actual calculations. And so how you go about reducing your emissions is really up to each um, project. But unless the drivers are really there for, that catch everyone, it won't be a level playing field and the economics of it will always be um, difficult. And so those are radical changes in the sense that they would take, they're the kinds of changes that don't happen quickly. They don't happen like a job seeker or a job keeper might be able to happen. Mm. Okay, so putting on your Fraser's uh, property hat um, on, um, can I get an example of what you would consider as 
really good biophilic design in Australia. Uh, now, as in 2021. Sometimes I go to the most um, nondescript church or place of worship, and the other times I think about Sydney Opera House. You look at that building there, it has everything. Uh, well, it has a lot. You know, it's um, got that visual connection to nature. There's a rhythm to its sculptural elements. Um, there's a texture to the materiality. You obviously have that presence of water. The way that the light hits that building and then enters that building, it has that, those forms and patterns in terms of its structure that mimic um, something that you might find in the natural world. The building itself, when you walk through it, has a certain complexity, um, but there's also a lot of um, order to it, given that its function is a theatre. Um, and yet, it's so iconic, and at the same time, there's a sort of mysterious element to it, and from every angle that you see it, uh, inside or outside, it's intriguing, um, makes you want to explore more. There are no plants or green walls, right? <laughs> I'm talking about all the other things you know, circling back to your original, um, you know, reflections on what biophilic design means. I think of a, a building like that, which is obviously, I think, maybe the most well-known modern building in the whole of the world. You ask anyone around the world, um, yeah. the simplest silhouette, and they'll be able to tell you what that building is. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a building that was built post-air conditioning, really, you know, when you're looking at pre-air conditioning, I mentioned those old places of worship, um, you know, we're talking about buildings that allow in the outside, inside a lot more effectively because there was a necessity to um, compared to today where we can build boxes and call them machines. Okay, so that, that, that's a real life example, but let's, how about a, a wish list? How about, you know, like fantasy football for architects? What would be your penultimate example of biophilic design in an urban environment? It would feel like um, you're in a forest and yet it has the functions of the work that you need to do. Imagine if you were in a forest with your laptop and you can go to work that day and that is what it's like. You um, smell the moss on the trees you can sit in the area that's in direct sunlight or you can move and go into a shade you can sit inside a tree hollow for a little bit of privacy um, you can hear the birds they tell you actually uh, dawn and dusk you know what time to go home um, there are gathering spaces where you can actually um, meet not uh, not on a screen but um, where there's a depth to what you can see so you're close, close up to people, and at the same time, one glance away, you can see kilometers into the distance. Um, that, for me, would be like the ideal sort of imagery of a of a biophilic design place. It's essentially a wild place that has some of the functions of the built environment, rather than being a built place that has some functions of the natural world. It sounds it sounds almost too good to be true, Stephen. There are some buildings that I've been to that, like, just the ultimate in biophilic design in so many ways. Like, um, have, you, have you been to Singapore, for example? Yes. Um, there's a hospital there, um, Ku Tech Quat Hospital, I think it's pronounced. And um, 
It's the only hospital, so my parents worked in hospitals, so I grew up spending a lot of time in hospitals, but this is the only hospital in the world where, as a result of, a ten, of, of arriving, I felt better. Wow. And that's a very hard thing to say about a place. And the way they thought about both the structure, the layout, the environment there, and it's an incredibly urban environment, Singapore. Um, yeah. Like, you know, high density. That's one of those buildings that has one of those incredibly high ratios, like three or four times its footprint is greenery through roof gardens, facades, podiums, balconies. They've designed the building so it funnels the, the prevailing wind across a body of water to cool it down and then the ribs, the, the building kind of has these sort of wings so it channels that airflow up the side of the building. And then there's this kind of balconies with um, herbs, in some cases I've seen medicinal herbs. So you've got this airflow, prevailing wind, going over this water, it's cooling it down, um, hits the, the facade of the building, is channeled up through the wings that they've designed onto it and into a hospital window over a medicinal herb, bringing the smell inside with the air as well as the um, ambient temperatures. They've got, you know, they've actually repopulated it with hundreds of species of butterflies. All these birds then start arriving. Um, there's this amazing kind of aquatic life that's embedded into the public spaces. And this is a hospital, you know, um, in a very dense environment. It's, and that's all without healthcare, all without doctors. <laughs> that yeah. I've had that experience of feeling better. It's interesting you, what you told me earlier about that, that building in the US where they'd had these screens of the, the sunlight and the, and the palm trees swaying inside. And now you're telling me about a hospital in Singapore. Why can't that building in the US have the same thing as that Singapore hospital? I think it's a matter of um, framing. That building in the US was thinking about it being a building trying to replicate through um, digital um, medium the natural world. So instead of having, um, instead of an actual skylight, they're replicating the skylight and not understanding all of the intrinsic aspects of what a skylight does. A skylight lets you know if it's sunny or rainy. It lets you know if it's light or dark. You know if a bird lands on your skylight. You can hear when um, there's movement up there. It might open and close that lets air get to you. It allows air to escape. None of that can be done with a TV screen. True. I've got to say, uh, Stephen Choi from Fraser's Property, they've got to be one of the most inspirational podcasts I've done for a, for a while. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, hopefully I wasn't too elusive, but um, no. it's a fascinating area. Yeah. It is. It is a fascinating area. I dare say we'll be talking about it again for some time to come. Stephen Choi from Fraser's Property, um, it was lovely to talk to you and I look forward to talking to you again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're doing in, in making all of this far more accessible to people. It's, it's really admirable. No, thank you. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. Interface is a leading provider and local manufacturer of flooring solutions and global leader in, in sustainability. They've recently achieved a carbon negative milestone, launching the world's first carbon negative carpet tile. 
Interface has been leading the way by reducing the carbon footprint of their products and manufacturing processes for more than two decades because only by working together with designers, engineers and scientists can we make the changes required to reverse global warming. I'm Brent Kermelitic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine.